0: Okay, we are live. Hope you're all well. My name is Yoni Ruppensweig, here on Shiva. July 15th, um, and uh, we are giving classes on Halacha and health Today is our last class on Halacha and mental health. And um, it was the first time that uh, I really um, managed to give a full course on this topic as I told you and I've told you throughout uh, I've written a book on the topic I haven't yet published the book um, when I when to be sure asked if I want to give a series on this I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity uh, to do so and uh, so this is the first time that I've done that um, <laughs> I hope that's okay that you guys were kind of like uh, my guinea pigs and that uh, I hope also that it came out okay I uh, I'm truly happy to hear feedback, not now. Right? I don't want to waste my share on that, okay? But uh, I'm going to write my email in the chat, and if anybody wants to give me feedback on the course, um, obviously it's always nice to hear good things, but it's very possible that, you know, you have negative things to say, and that's fine. I'm, You know, you can only learn from your mistakes. So um, if I made mistakes, if there are things that, you know, that I needed to do better uh, in the future, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The only ones who can really share that with me are you. So uh, do not feel the need to spare my feelings. Uh if you want to uh if you want to give me feedback one way or another, I am more than happy to hear it. And I of course am also appreciative of it, uh, even in advance. Um, okay. So anyway, um let's like I said, let's not waste our time uh, on our last class. Um, and go straight for uh, the material. So we have quite a few things to uh, discuss today. Um, as I mentioned to you last time, I wanted to discuss agoraphobia, but um, besides that, I was asked, I was, uh, there were two uh, requests that came in. Um, one had to do with homosexuality and the other one had to do with um, uh, personality disorders. Okay, so uh, we're gonna try and cover as much of that as possible uh today. Um I will start off with agoraphobia as planned. Um and uh we'll move from there. Okay. Uh agoraphobia um I don't think really people understand always what it is. It comes in different forms. Uh so it's not like you can say, oh it's just one thing and uh, it's a fear of of uh of uh, like crowded spaces one might say but it's not exactly that way. It's hard, like I said, it's a little bit difficult to, to explain it all in one shot. You can look it up you know, and see what the classical definition is. I think the best way to maybe explain to you what it is that I am talking about would be to give you an example, okay, of a case that came before me, a, a woman who came to me and asked me uh, a question, halakhic questions that have to do with her agoraphobia. So let me quickly relate to you her story. Okay, and then through that you'll understand a little bit what we're dealing with. So uh, this woman um, was uh, lived in a certain country, not Israel. And um, she was in a supermarket one day, and I think it was a fast day. And then uh, she sort of fainted, whether because of the fast or from other reasons. She fainted, okay, uh, in, the, in the store. And she was, when she came to, you know, she was very embarrassed by what had occurred. And the result of that was a deterioration that she could not have expected. I mean, many of us go through embarrassing periods, you know, like a, a moments uh, in public. But for her, what happened was that she began to be afraid to go and be in that public space, specifically in that supermarket. Um, but that, of course, devolved and eventually came to a situation where it was difficult for her to go anywhere because she became worried she might faint. She became worried she would be embarrassed as a result of that. Um, And so it debilitated her to a significant degree. And she didn't even know what was going on with herself until she finally decided to seek help. And the therapist told her that she thinks that what she has is a case of agoraphobia, you know, where she's afraid to be seen in public spaces. She's afraid to go out. She doesn't know what will happen when she goes out. She doesn't know if she'll be able to save herself. Right? Will someone help her uh, if she's caught in a certain situation and she faints? Who will there to be? Who will be there to to care for her? Who will be there to to save her? Etc. Um, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. People are afraid of getting stuck in situations, getting caught uh, uh, in a public space. These are these are examples of agoraphobia. So. I hope that that explains a little bit, you know, what we're talking about. Uh, Some cases, her case was not very bad. She was able to go out. uh, Just, you know, it it, uh, took a lot of getting used to, and also she was used to, she was able to go out to places more that she was um, familiar with, and she kind of, like, trained herself to go. Um, But there are some people who really close themselves up and just won't go anywhere. Because, like I said, they're just afraid of what will happen when they go to an unfamiliar place uh, or a crowded space and what will happen as a result of that? Will they be able to, as i mentioned before, to get out on time, uh, back to a safe place, you know, if they, uh, um, if they get stuck in a certain kind of situation? So let me give you an example from this, uh, you know, uh, this uh, woman that uh, came to me, this young woman, uh, she, <clears throat> she was a student of mine. And at a certain institution that I was teaching, uh, she wanted to come and meet with me. And I met her at this institution, and she was telling me all about her troubles. And I said, "Well, how did you come here uh, to this to meet with me at this institution?" And she told me that story as well. She said that uh, the first time uh, she left the house, you know, she dared, you know, to get on get on the bus, and when she got up to the institution, she couldn't. She couldn't do it. She, couldn't, she, she got off the bus, she couldn't go, walk in. So she stayed at the bus stop, and the next bus came and she went home. So that was what she did the first time. The second time, she managed to make it into the building, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it took time until she could be safe, feel safe, you know, that she could go there, and it wasn't easy for her, right? Uh, other examples were um, going to show, okay? So she mentioned uh, the the problem of going to show and, and what would she do in that situation? Because she felt the need to sit in the Ezrat Nashim, in the women's section, in a place where she could have direct eye contact with her husband. And the reason she felt the need for that is because what if she needs it? What if she needs to get out? Once again, it's a public space. She's stuck there, you know, so to speak, in this, in, inside this building. What if something happens? What, who will? So having that direct eye contact, with her husband helped her to feel safe, uh, to feel that she could go to shul. Um, it was something that she needed. Um, she mentioned also going to mikveh as a problem. She takes off her clothes and she walks into the into the mikveh. And what happens if she faints right there and then? It's very scary, right? You know, she, to be uh, in that situation, you're feeling vulnerable anyway uh, without your clothes on, and that whole scenario. Uh, could be very, very uh, fearful and um, she didn't know whether she could, you know, to go through that, you know, it was going to be like, uh, you know, very, very scary for her. So as a result of that, all these things um, um, would be an issue, okay? Uh, these are all examples, okay, um, of the things that she asked me. So let me answer some of these questions uh, just to kind of like give an idea of what I said to her, okay? but. But before I do, once again, just to sum up, agoraphobia could be very debilitating, depending on the person, and you know they want to make sure that they're safe wherever they go. Uh, it could it could really hamper someone's ability to function, and so we really, really need to um, <clears throat> see if we can help such an individual. So uh, let me, uh, like I said, let me. Um, share with you uh, uh, some of the things that I that I said to her. So, for example, with regard to the mikvah, okay, um, the mikvah question is actually, in a sense, something that has a little bit of um, of um, uh, history, okay, because uh, when a woman converts, right, so she has to also go to the mikvah, but she has to go into the she has to toggle in the mikvah. Uh, in the presence of three dayanim, okay? Three um, uh, um, uh, men, right, who form a beitin. Now I'm sure you can understand uh, that that's not modest, right? For three men to be looking and seeing, you know, uncovered woman who's not sneas, not modest, treuveling, some say that looking at a woman treuveling even if she's dressed is not modest, but let's not go into that right now. Uh, I have a whole trou that I wrote about that, but that's not for now. Either way, the question is what to do in that situation um so what what do we do with converts with converts? what we do is we we ask them to wear like a loose flowing robe okay loose flowing so that the water can get everywhere. the robe so that she's completely covered, okay so the woman in question right, when she comes to toyval as a in you know, order to convert uh she's completely covered um but it's loose flowing so that there's no chatzita, what we call it, right? There's no nothing blocking the water from getting everywhere and therefore she can toible, she can immerse and there's no issue. Um, basically, I told the woman who was suffering from agoraphobia to do the very same thing. Uh, and I asked her, of course, whether this would uh, be sufficient for her and she thought that it was a good idea. I'm not saying that this would work for everybody, to be clear. I'm not claiming that this is one size fits all. You do need to, of course, always talk to the specific person and figure out what's good for them. For this individual that spoke to me, uh, this solution seemed sufficient to her that she would be able to do that. Um, because once again, the worry, right, is that you'd be caught embarrassed, naked, without your clothes on, you know, et cetera. Uh, in this situation, right, if she's wearing a robe, then she feels more safe. She feels that she can uh, do this sort of thing, you know, eas- more more easily. It's uh, an acceptable solution uh, in other cases of tefillah. So from a perspective, we're also covered. Um, and therefore, um, I think that, you know, if that solution works for someone, uh, then that's definitely a good way to go. Um, what about going to shul? So as I mentioned before, she felt the need to always be in eye contact, and, and she even told me, I think the one time that you know when her husband wasn't in eye contact, she became very, very anxious um, you know very very uh, had a, had a whole panic attack you know so um, obviously that's not good. I offered the possible solution that she should be able to take a phone with her to show um, in order for her to uh, be able to call. Uh, MADA or whatever, 911 if you will, or some form of, you know, like an ambulance or something, right, if something was going on. The idea being that she wouldn't even need to use the phone, okay? It's not about using the phone. Just having the phone would hopefully make her feel safe enough that she uh, wouldn't even need to to be in eye contact with a husband, that she could sit anywhere in the uh, women's section. It would free her a little bit up. So that she could always feel like, if she needs to, she can always whip out the phone and call someone. And the idea was more more for her uh, uh, feeling okay. Okay, what about the laws of Shabbat? How does that work with the laws of Shabbat? Um, so in order to understand this, let me just make a, a small point that maybe you're not aware of. I mean, we always teach our kids, right, um, on Shabbat. One of the first things I think we teach our kids is muktze, okay, the term muktze. The term muktze means, of course, you know, there are certain things you're not supposed to touch uh, on Shabbat. You're not supposed to move. So even before, even though the entire concept is rabbinic, um, and there are many concepts that are del Torah concepts on Shabbat, we usually don't teach those first. We usually teach the rabbinic concepts first uh, because they're more prevalent. They're everywhere. Unfortunately, the term muktze is being misused many times, and this is not a, so I'm not gonna go through the whole thing. But it's important for you to know, not everything is muktzeh. There's a difference between the term muktzeh and klisha malachto le'iser. I'm going to write uh, both of these things. I see there are some comments here. Uh, I'm gonna get to them in a second. But um, I'm gonna write both these terms in the chat. Muktzeh and then klisha malachto le'iser. Okay, these are two different things, okay? Muktzeh is something that cannot be used for anything. Imagine like a rock, okay, like a random rock you see on the street. It's not a cleat. It's not a vessel. It's not being used for something. Could you possibly use it for something? Yes, I guess you could. I mean, when a person wants to pick it up on Shabbat, obviously he wants to use it for something. But it is not designated for use. It is not put aside for use. Therefore, it is muktsi. Muktsi is something that you didn't even think that you would want to use. That's muktsi in simple terms. A klisha melechto le'isur is different. It is, a, it is a kli, it is something which can be used. But melechto le'isur, but its usual use, its regular use, is for things that are not allowed on Shabbat. So a pen, for example, is a kli, it's usable. The only reason you can't use it on Shabbat is because melechto le'isur, a pen is used to write with. You're not allowed to write on Shabbat. That's a deoraita, with the writing. So therefore it's a kli, but melakhto Isur. It's important to realize that a klisha melakhto isur has actually, is more lenient, much more lenient than mukta objects. What do we say with a kalisha melakhto Isur? With a klisha melakhto we say that it's allowed. You can move it. What's called letzorech gufo, letzorech me'komo. I'm gonna write those down too, okay? Just so you have them. Letzorech gufo, letzorech me'komo. Let me explain both of these things. So let's say I'm setting the table. Okay, and there is a pen on the table. And I want to set the table where the pen is. I am allowed to move the pen. Why? Let's <laughs> mekomo, for its place, for its space. It's taking up a space that I need. In order to remove it from that space and to put something else there, because it's not a mukta object, it's not a mukta object, it's just a klisha melech you are allowed to move it for its space. Okay, that's rule number one. Rule number two, for itself, what does that mean? Let's say my back itches and I want to take a pen and use it as a back scratcher. I can do that on Shabbat. I know that sounds a bit weird, but I can do that. So can you. There's no prohibition in doing it. If you want to use a pen or a pencil or a marker on Shabbat as a back scratcher, you can. You don't have to paint with it, you don't have to draw with it. That's obviously. Uh, a, pr- a problem because you know how to write on Shabbat. But since it's a shemelach tol the Torah gufo, for its own use, you are allowed to use it, okay? Um, in the same way, uh, taking a phone, right, with you, um, as something which calms you down. The phone itself is probably a klih, shemelach tol I'm not saying could fall into a different designation, but that's my opinion. And if it is a the, then it's allowed, right, for itself. Here, it, in itself, it calms the person down. So therefore, it shouldn't be an issue uh, in terms of being metabolite, be, being able to use it in that capacity. It is much better, of course, to be metabolite, to move it in a bag with something else okay so if you put the phone before Shabbat into a bag which has tissues uh, your sitter you know things of that sort you know and then you all together you're not being mentality and I'm moving the phone on its own I'm moving it as part of other things which are allowed to be moved no problem on Shabbat Um, and that's of course much better and that's the kind of like advice that I that I gave over here okay okay Uh, let me just see some of these comments I see okay um Okay. Thank you, Ramon Garza. And um, hey, I'll sure I'll unmute everybody if you want to say thanks. It's not a problem. Um, yes, I can. Uh, if people want to send me their email, that's fine. Um, and you can email me if you want Mario Macamo. That's also fine. Um, I see that. Uh, I wrote here, why phone? Why not have an accompanying woman go to the Knesset with her who can catch her if she faints and have the phone at the etc. et It's an emergency president, Nick. Let's better call the emergency service. Yeah, look, 100%, I agree with you. Meaning I agree with the last line specifically. it's It depends on the situation. If the woman told me that that's enough for her, then of course that would be better. I'm not saying Davka phone, right? You know, of course, uh, you know, if the phone is uh, not needed, then uh, other things, you know, 100%. Really depends on the situation, really depends on the person. You know, we need to do, we need to find out what's better, but those were examples of things that, you know, that she asked me and things that, uh, that, and ways that I answered her. I assume that any other presentation of agoraphobia might require other sorts of uh, responses, other sorts of answers, and each case would be, you know, would be different. Um, And we need to, of course, uh, accommodate each person according to uh, their specific need. So that's what I would have to say about that. Um, And I hope that that's clear. Okay, I just wanted you to be aware of this uh, condition. I don't think it's very widespread, at least not very widespread in terms of people knowing about it, knowing what it is. Uh, I assume that some of the other things that we've spoken about in the last few uh, months have been more well-known to you. Uh, but this is something that people really do suffer from, and um, and when they suffer from it, it's pretty bad. So uh, we need to once again be sensitive to that those needs, and of course provide halachic answers that uh, allow them to uh, uh, live their lives in a, in a semi-normal way uh, to the best of our ability. Um, Arya writes, "Could you move it before there is a need, a potential need?" I'm not sure exactly what the question is over here. Um, move what, the phone? And what is a potential need? Um, Potentially would mean, I mean, I guess it's what she's doing, right? She doesn't know that things will be wrong in Scholl. She's going to shoal with a phone because it's a potential need. But in a sense, the potential need is is the need. The potential that something might happen is exactly the need. You know, that that's that's the whole point. So I guess you could say it's not really potential anymore, it's just the need itself. I guess the here, right? I guess the new thing here is that we're saying that the potential is not potential. That really is the whole point of the sack here, is that we're claiming that the potential need. No Eruv, if there's no Arab, it's a it's a whole different ball a whole different ball of wax because that's gonna be uh that's gonna be a whole other problem. And no arab might fall into a Dorita issue already. Um then we'd have to think of other possible solutions. I mean maybe she just shouldn't go to show, right? But uh, we're trying to make sure that she can. Uh, maybe in that case, we need one of those other options that you haven't mentioned before. Um, uh, oh, sorry, I see that uh, she wrote it specifically to me. Um, but yeah, that she mentioned before. Um, so then, uh, then yeah, uh, then I would say uh, maybe other possibilities. Maybe other possibilities. Okay. <clears throat> Um, right so that's uh, that's about that let me go on to uh, the question someone asked me anonymously last time uh, regarding homosexuality now I mentioned last time that I don't really want to talk about it so much uh, in the sense that it's not really in the book at all uh, what I'm going to talk about now and the reason in the book is because it's on the DSM okay so uh, I know, and I think some of you, if not all of you know, that what goes into the DSM and what doesn't is not only um, com- strictly professional. Uh, there are definitely social and political issues that surround the DSM, uh, you know, that uh, that go into that. And and, and uh, I'm aware of those things, and okay. But it doesn't change the fact that it's not in there. So nevertheless, I promised that I would say some words about it. So I will start talking a little bit about homosexuality. I will keep it short and to the point. Um, And if there's any specific questions, um, you can write to me anonymously or otherwise, uh, and I will answer about this, any specific things you want me to discuss. uh, But like I said, I will discuss uh, short and to the point. Um, Perhaps the main uh, issue that is raised with regards to uh, homosexuality um, is the question of conversion therapy um, and whether or not it should be used. Uh, conversion therapy has a bad name that's for sure okay. Uh, the idea that you would put someone through a process that uh, will try to change who they are and if they are indeed that you know uh, what they are uh, seems cruel and has not only seems cruel, but according to many people uh, testifying so, uh, seems to also be cruel many times and unsuccessful. could actually mess with people in a very, very significant way, which is why uh, telling people that they should use conversion therapy, uh, recommending conversion therapy, is, uh, first of all, like I said, publicly today, very frowned upon. It's not a popular thing to say. Um, but also just dangerous I would never uh just off the bat like if someone came to me and said oh should I do this I would never say to the person yeah of course conversion therapy I, I don't I couldn't answer that question in that way I I know too many horror stories you know about things that I've done wrong with that um and that you know don't work so uh, to me conversion therapy is something which you know you need to be careful about however it is important to note two things. Number one, not all conversion therapies are the same, okay? Uh, unfortunately, we just talk about it with one name, conversion therapy. But my understanding is, and I'm not an expert, is that there are some really negative, bad practices uh, that are called conversion therapy. And then there are other practices, other ways of doing things that are, I think, less invasive and more careful, um, and not all conversion therapies are the same. So. Therefore, uh, I think that we need to be careful with that, not always um, kind of like judge a book by its cover. In this case, really like that, you know, by its cover. So if you hear of conversion therapy that was done that was a disaster, and another person who went through it and it helped him, uh, it doesn't mean that they went through the same process. You know, it could very well mean that I mean, they went through different processes. So that's number one, that's important to realize. And if you want to really read up about it a little bit more, you should. Uh but definitely, like I said, while conversion therapy just has a bad name, period. Um I really don't think that practically speaking the same things happen to everybody. Uh it's it's different. It depends what. That's number one. Uh number two, uh those who want to try conversion therapy, I mean in the religious world, okay, I'm talking specifically about my area of expertise, uh, are many times really suffering. You know with what they with what they currently feel and experience right um, meaning uh, we're talking about someone who wants to be orthodox and in the orthodox world, building a family is a heterosexual family, not a homosexual family right so uh, lesbians and and homosexuals will be um to some extent not when, uh, you know in the worst case ostracized. But even in the best case scenario, they're not gonna be looked at or viewed as kind of like a normal family, right? So the person who comes to me with this question, the person who is plagued by this question, wants to try conversion therapy because he wants to be, so to speak, like everybody else, right? And he wants to be able to fit in, you know, with everyone else in the religious society. And I'll be very honest, I wanna help him, right? In other words, if I could be assured that conversion therapy could help, then maybe I would recommend it, in the sense that I would want to help him achieve his goal, right, if someone is, for example, bisexual, right, or on the, on the face of it, he could marry a woman or, right, let's say he's a man, and he could marry a woman, he could marry a man, right, and he wants to remain orthodox. So I would definitely encourage him to try and tap into his feelings towards women rather than men, um, even though he might be giving up something of his personality in that sense. Because once again, it's not just about being a homosexual. He, wants, he has other aspirations in his life as well. Those aspirations also want to be, also include leading an orthodox lifestyle. So in that case, I would definitely encourage such a person to try and create a house, a home, with a woman and have a relationship with a woman, right? Because he's bisexual. The, the problem with homosexuality is that we're saying he can't, he can't do that, right? He can't be that way. So why would we force him into a kind of relationship where he would be miserable? And I would never do that. Once again, I, I want to be clear. I would never do such a thing. If someone who's a homosexual came to me and said, should I go out with a woman and marry her? I would say, I would be very careful. I would say, don't, don't do that. You know, certainly not if, <laughs> certainly if you're not, I mean, if you're not going to tell her, you know, like that's, that's terrible. terrible. But I know people who came to me, confessed to me, that uh, they've been married for over 30 years and they're homosexuals and their wives don't know. Um, and then... One of them actually told me that he told his wife and whatever, it was a whole story. I mean, she was not happy <laughs> to hear that. And uh, certainly if you marry and, and the marriage dissolves afterwards and because of that, I mean, you can't do that to people. You know, you can't do that. You can't marry someone and create a situation where they're living with you and, and the marriage is a lie. You have to be honest with them about what they're getting into. Maybe they'll want to marry you anyway, but you still have to be honest with them. And And I certainly could not, support or encourage such a marriage because I will not know what I'm subjecting either one of the sides to. I think it's very dangerous. But all that I'm saying as a disclaimer to the idea that if I could, if I could be guaranteed that something could work for this individual, then maybe, then maybe. The idea of conversion in and of itself, right, is not a terrible idea if it, it could work. Not because I, oh, I'm, I don't want the person to be who he is. I want the person to be who they can be in in a full sense. Once again, their sexual identity is not the only part of their identity that they that they care for or that I care for. So therefore, if it can be done safely and properly. But I think we have to remember, and I think I think that you know, because sometimes uh, you know, it's like different differing data is brought before us, right? So people will say, converted therapy never works; it always hurts." Another people will say, "What do you mean?" I know people who went through conversion therapy and it was fine for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think that, you know, if we look at what's called the, I'm sure you know this term, the Kinsey, what's called the Kinsey scale, right? So Alfred Kinsey and the idea that there are people who are on one side of the spectrum and the other side of the spectrum, I mean, that could explain a lot of the discrepancies. In other words, it could very well be that someone who is, let's call it 100% homosexual, right, that they can't be converted. But someone who is a little bit on on the gray area on the scale, on the Kinsey scale, who maybe, let's call it 80% or 70%, you know, uh, leaning towards kind of like a homosexual relationship, and then 30% thirty percent, you know, lean to the other side. So he may have very strong homosexual feelings. But he he might with help, you know, be able to so once again, I'm not looking to change people in in and of itself. I'm not going out there trying to proselytize, you know, oh, I want to change you. But if the person comes to me, If the person wants my help, the person is looking for, so I would never tell them, once again, I would never tell them, go search out conversion therapy, because I wouldn't know what it would do to him. But if it's a person who afterwards claims, maybe I, you know, I have feelings towards girls as well, et cetera, so I would say maybe you should check things out, maybe there is a way, maybe, you know, et cetera, to help the person, you know, achieve whatever goal he wants to achieve. Of course keeping himself safe and keeping you know the girl that he wants to go out with or if it's a girl keeping the guy that she wants to go out with you know safe that they're not falling into a trap or falling into a relationship that they're not aware of or you know etc of course to make sure safeguard the uh the uh dignity of everybody involved um so that's what i would say regarding uh, uh that issue if there are other questions regarding uh homosexuality i'm happy to answer them uh, but while you're thinking about that, I will say a few words about gender dysphoria, which is in the book, okay? Um, gender dysphoria, I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously the feeling, right, that you're in the wrong body, okay? Yeah. The feeling that you know, you want to be either a man and you want to be a woman or vice versa. Um, and that is still considered to be something which is um you know which has um uh mental health um classifications um and i think that we can understand that uh, once again I, I don't want to be to sound political or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, from a mere clinical perspective i can understand the idea that someone who right presents before us right as male and basically says i feel like a female you know would sound strange and unusual from a mental health perspective. Uh, today, within broader society, it's something that's accepted as, you know, like a possible, like normal kind of uh, situation. Um, nevertheless, I understand, you know, why it would appear in the DSN um, as something that, you know, one might must care for. And the truth is that I think that people who are you know, trance as they call them today um, are in risk of, of significant mental health issues, statistically speaking. Yeah. In other words, the, ish, the issues that they go through are not easy and uh, unfortunately suicide rates are, are high. And uh, I think we have to understand it's, it's really not a simple situation um, for people who are undergoing that. I guess the question at the end of the day is that I discussed in the book was whether they can do anything to um, alleviate that uh, through changing their bodies. So uh, taking hormones, uh, wearing clothes of the other gender, um, doing surgery, uh, all these things are fraught with halachic issues, fraught with halachic issues, uh, which I'm sure you understand, I could give, I really mean, I could give a whole other series just on this topic. Um, I wrote about 130 pages on it um, a few years back, uh, with full of halachic sources, et cetera, it's a very complicated topic, and really demands a lot of understanding of uh, biology and stock and and the halachic issues. There's a lot to say here. Suffice it to say that it's not a, a simple issue, and it comes across derrititas full derrits full uh you know torah prohibitions and as a result of that, uh, to just say oh, it's probably okay you know is not enough we We'd probably have to prove that there was a picua aspect here. In other words, that, that these people are in a life-threatening situation. And like I said, many of them are. Many of them are, are really in a situation where, once again, I mean, especially from the Orthodox world, people who have been basically shunned by the Orthodox world for how strangely they behave or the things that they do, you know, um, it's very hard. It's very hard, and they want to be part of the Orthodox world, but who would accept them? Who would uh, who would take them in? I mean, some places are more forgiving than others. Um, in my own shul, you know, in my own community, there are some individuals who are trans, and I do my best to make sure that they feel as comfortable as they can in shul, because um, I want them to be part of the community. But it's very difficult, I think, within the Orthodox world today to be trans. And as a result of that, coupled with, like I said, all the other issues that they may have, uh, the suicide rate is quite high. So so what if I what if as a post I got um an opinion from a doctor who said this individual is suicidal? In fact, what if they've had suicidal attempts? Suicidal attempts already. And they're unwell, right? They're clearly unwell. And now they say we think that it will alleviate things if they do the surgery, right? Or if they wear other, you know, if a man wears a woman's clothing or vice versa, et cetera, et cetera. What do we say then? Suppose we would say, pikoach nefesh, right? So pikoach nefesh, if it's life-threatening, then, um, you know, then it's over, yeah? Um, anyway, so I think that, um, I think that, um, uh, I mean, I <laughs> okay. It doesn't matter what I think. With regards to questions like this, I I don't I don't pass myself. I went ah. to a few rabbanim. I received three different answers to this question. Okay. Answer number one. We don't know if the facts are correct. Meaning, we don't know if it really will save the person's life. We don't know. We can't know, and so we can't allow it. We don't know for sure. All these uh, res- all this research is uh, it's always skewed. It's always political. You know, how can you know that it will save the person's life? You don't know. In fact, we've read research that if you uh, you know if, if the person does the change, it'll make their life, life worse. It'll shorten their life. It'll actually play into their problem and eventually cause them to suicide earlier. This is not the way. Yeah, we don't know if the, we don't know if we can trust the data. Bottom line, we don't know if we can trust the data. I heard this from several rubanin, and I'll be very honest. I don't know if we can trust the data. I I spoke to uh, different mental health professionals on this issue, and, of course, each one gave me different answers. Some people will tell you 100% it will change their lives for the better. And I've spoken to families, by the way, where the child has done the change, and the parents say to me, 100% it's changed their lives for the better. So what am I going to say? It hasn't. And on the other hand, I see people saying, no, 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 it won't help. I've seen it a million times, it won't help, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, even if it'll help for a moment, for a day, for a week, you know, but eventually doesn't do anything, you know. And I've seen research that's done one direction, another direction. You can Google it and see for yourselves. The data is definitely mixed and unclear. And uh, to what extent we can, really uh, formulate a PSAC based on the data is very difficult to know. Nevertheless, I also have two other answers for you. Answer number one, no. Answer number two, yes. What does that mean? Some rabbis tell me that even if it is pikuach nefesh, there's no way we can allow it. You might say, what do you mean, pikuach nefesh? But what the rabbit is saying, and I know that many people here might not agree with this, uh, but what the, Rav, what the Rabbanim who told me that said, what they basically said was, this cannot be the way to heal this person. It is against the Torah will. It seems so unnatural to these rabbis uh, that this would be the solution. So unnatural to be this way that there must be a different solution. Basically what they said is, look for a different solution. We're sensitive to the fact that it's nefesh. We don't accept the fact that 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 solution that is so contrary to Torah norms would be a solution. If Torah norms are so against it, it must not be an acceptable solution. That was answer number two. Answer number three was yes. Answer number three was classic. If indeed doctors say that this person is in a life-threatening situation, and they've had suicidal ideation, and suicidal attempts, we can allow the surgery under those circumstances. We can allow the wearing of other clothes under those circumstances. So you see how complicated this issue is and how fraught it is, um, but uh, it's it uh, can be very divisive and it's very um, sensitive, very sensitive issue. Okay, so that's uh, number two. That's, uh, that's sorry, that's, uh, that's gender dysphoria for you. Um, And that's the second uh, topic that I wanted to discuss. The first one was agoraphobia and the second one was uh, LGBTQ+, etc. If there are any more questions on either of these things, please let me know. Now we come to our third and uh, final topic for today, um, which is personality disorders. Um, I'll be very honest, there isn't much about personality disorders in my book, okay? What's the reason for that? Why is there not not a lot in the book? So first of all, let me go through with you. I know that you're not all familiar with the uh, with the terms, okay? But let me go through with you quickly through the different personality disorders, okay? Um, so quickly, all right? You have a schizotypal personality disorder. It's basically someone who acts very very strangely, okay? Usually they will be like a chole sheein all right? Not someone who's in like Proper danger, but someone who is, you know, rainbow, he has a you know, little bit of, a, like, you know, someone who's a little bit sick, right? He uh, could also be like a Shota, like someone who is, you know, not all there, but it depends how significant the issue is. There are no suicidal tendencies usually uh, that accompany this. Um, therefore, uh, it's not usually, okay? Um, you know, so therefore, this person is just you know, considered a little bit ill. Uh, you have antisocial personality disorder. These individuals are like, uh, act in a criminal fashion usually, okay? Uh, therefore, because they, uh, they might be addicted to drugs and things of that sort, um, they might also threaten other people physically. Uh, therefore, they are treated like a whole, it's like like that. And therefore, it's like all out with these individuals. In other words, you know, you have to, you do whatever you can to, curb their um, their um, problem uh, to handle them because, like I said, they left unchecked. Someone with antisocial personality disorder could be doing like monish criminal things and hurting people, including themselves. So therefore, such an individual, you could break anything to help them, okay? Uh, paranoid personality disorder. I think everyone knows what a paranoid person is, but I don't think that they have a specific locking designation that is problematic. Usually they don't. Do anything hurtful. They hurt their own selves in terms of their life, but not in an ethical way. Obviously, I mean the people around them, obviously are not usually hurt by them. They're hurt by their own actions. It's unfortunate. They need help, but I don't know if we would consider them to be sick or unwell in a clear halachic way. Okay, Um, schizoid personality, not schizotypal like before. Schizoid personality disorder, um, basically someone who kind of like keeps to themselves. Uh, they're a bit cold emotionally. Um, once again, this is not something, I mean, they're not, you know, their lives aren't affected in a way that I would consider them to be sick, ill, uh, from a halakhic perspective. Of course, their lives are affected. All these things, their lives are affected. But to what extent, right? I wouldn't say that usually with Schizoid Personality Disorder, there's like a significant issue that needs to be dealt with on a halachic level, okay? Um, borderline personality disorder, I'll get back to that because that actually there is a lot to say about it. and also I think people are very much aware of BPD, but let me put that on the side for a second, okay? Uh, histrionic personality disorder, someone who's very, very colorful, a lot of times uh, acts dramatically, kind of like, you know, uh, externally in a very, very significant way. Once again, I don't know if there's any halachic issue involved. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder, we all know what narcissism is. Like I said, is it is a person, Unwell, of course, unwell. Are they sick holistically? I don't think so. It doesn't affect their lives in a way that I would say. Oh, they. We should. We need to allow something, you know, for them to be able to function. Um, avoidant personality disorder. Um, uh, once again, people who are um, very sensitive to like, the fact that people avoid them, and therefore they also avoid others. Um, same idea as before. Dependent personality disorder. Right. I think it's pretty obvious what that is. Um, they're dependent, they're lack of self, uh, uh, you know, like of, uh, uh, kind of like you know, uh, feeling like they can control, uh, you know, be be responsible uh, for their own lives. Okay, it's unfortunate, but are they once again halakhically, right? Are they sick? I don't think so. Um, and uh, I think that's about it. Uh, there's also a sense of compulsive personality disorder. i Am not going to go into that right now? A lot of these individuals, right? Why did I go through the list? A lot of these individuals are basically, uh, I mean, they're hunting it. They have issues, but from a halachic, strict halachic perspective, I'm not sure there's anything that we need to do for them. That it comes into uh, kind of like a halachic question or an issue that needs to be handled. I don't see how that is um, for most of these issues. The one, maybe exception, real exception, is borderline personality disorder. Um, Borderline personality disorder, like I said, I'm sure relatively you're aware. Uh, what this is, it's it's the reason it's called borderline personality disorder is because it's borderline between neurotic and psychotic. In other words, it's not really clear where the individual is. Um, it's a there are significant. It's like a mood, like a very significant mood disorder. Um, it's it's their person is unbalanced in terms of their moods. Um, unbalanced also in terms of their relationships with other people, uh, with their feelings about themselves, and it's very case dependent. Very case dependent. Uh, some people could be viewed as completely healthy, others um, as a whole and others as a whole So, you know, it's very case dependent. It's true that with borderline personality of is what to discuss, uh, and it's, but, it, but it depends on the case. Also, the, the suicide uh, rate is quite high. It's about 10% for BPD. Um, and as a result of that, you know, I mean, obviously we need to be very wary of this sort of thing. I once met a woman who uh had BPD uh she told me how on Shabbat one day she uh just to give you like an idea, right? You know, on Shabbat one day, she suddenly um she got a bug in her head. She can't even she couldn't even explain it to me, right? She decided she wants to go for a drive It's Shabbat. She's a religious woman. Um and she decided she just she has to go. She she demanded the keys to the car. Her husband refused to give to her, because he said, where's she gonna go? What's she gonna do now, who knows, yeah? Um, but she insisted that eventually she took the keys, she drove out of where she lives. Um, she drove very, very far uh, to like a place kind of like in the middle of nowhere a little bit. Uh, there was a little diner next to it, but except for that, nothing. Uh, there was like a cliff there, and she decided that she's gonna throw herself off the cliff, unbelievable. Uh, as you can imagine, she didn't because I'm, I was talking to her and hearing the story from her, right? But what happened was that she decided that she, she needed to go to the bathroom. I know it sounds weird, but that's what she decided. She went to the bathroom. When she was in the diner, you know, because she was dressed like a religious woman, so the waitress saw her and said, Can I get you something, you, you know? And she realized, the waitress realized something was wrong. And she basically bought her a cup of coffee or whatever. And, uh,. And that woman told me that if the waitress hadn't – if not for the fact that she wanted to go to the bathroom and the waitress noticed something was wrong and she had her sit down and have a cup of coffee, she would never have – I would never have saved saved her life. But, you know, it seems like very unstable, right? But like a moment later or a few hours later, she could be fine. I mean, they need to take medication and et cetera, et cetera. People born on personality disorder also have to check themselves in once in a while when things go wrong. It's not an easy thing to deal with. The point is that we need to understand that their coping mechanisms could change from person to person. It's very erratic. I think it's a little bit hard to uh, to give a rule for everybody. Uh, some people with BPD, for example, write in a journal. Helps them to write. Writing on Shabbat is a deorita. writer. But I think someone with BPD, right, who's um, who's uh, emotionally. Um, 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 Oh, there's a word for it, and I'm forgetting it now. <laughs> um, but they have some sort of like emotional uh, imbalance. That's not the word though. there's a different word for it. Um, okay. so, someone remembers they can tell me. Um, chemical imbalance. Uh, oh. Ah, not chemical imbalance. No, it's not what I meant. Uh, but okay. thank you thank you for the thank you for the option. Uh, there's another word for it. I just I just forget what it is. Um, you know, I'll up, you know let me let me uh, quickly. I'll tell you what it is, what I'm looking for. Okay, um, sorry. Dysregulation, that's what I was looking for. Emotional dysregulation. Uh, someone with BPD who's suffering from, so feeling emotional dysregulation, right, is definitely in a bad place. So for someone like that, I would say it's a do-right. So for someone like that, I would say they should definitely Write in their journal if they need to, or uh, keep themselves uh, focused, balanced, because uh, the, the, the like I said, the suicide rates are high. To so be very, very careful. So, yes, with BPD, uh, it's definitely something that I would say, you know, we need to worry about. Um, otherwise, not necessarily. Um, and uh, like I said, I mean, I mentioned schizotypal before. Okay, so schizotypal also could be sometimes problematic, but otherwise. Once again, I repeat, I don't think that we're dealing usually with personality disorders with something that is so severe um, that we need, that there's a certain halacha that we need to abrogate, that we need to uh, push to the side in order to uh, accommodate these uh, individuals, okay? Um, So that's what I have to say more or less about the personality disorders. Okay, before I wrap things up, are there any other questions? We have about eight minutes. Um, if there are any other questions, just let me know. Write them in the chat. Um, if not, I'll mention a few words of summary, and then if someone had the idea that I can unmute everybody if people wanna just uh, you know, say a few words, um, it's up, up to you, it's all good. Um, but uh, if you wanna you know, say what you got from the class or whatever, but anyway, let me just summarize. So, to me, and this is something that I'm not sure that I spoke about at all, okay, but I do think that it's very, very important. To me, one of the main points of writing this book uh, was uh, the issue of the mental health stigma, okay? I'm sure that you all know uh, what a significant stigma there is with regards to mental health, right? Someone if someone like, God forbid, right, if someone gets, let's say, cancer, they many times share that with other people because they need the help they want to share what they're going through and people don't judge you for having cancer people are just sad for you and they want to help and they want to be there for you but when someone says that he has uh, that he's suffering from depression it's like it's his fault right now i don't think so and i'm guessing a lot of you don't think so either but Many times, right, people who are suffering from depression, as an example I'm giving you right now, right, what they're told is, oh, come on, you can feel better. Come on, think happy thoughts, etc., etc." Imagine if someone who had cancer, we told them to think happy thoughts, and that would make them better. You would say that's ridiculous, right, they need real help. They can't just think happy thoughts, think that everything will be okay, and then it just magically will be. I guess what I'm saying is that for mental health it's the same. We don't always realize it's the same. Because it is in one's head, right? Whatever's happening is in that person's head. But it doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's not really affecting them. It doesn't mean that they're not really suffering. They are really suffering, and it really is real for them, and they really, really, really need help. They can't just do it on their own. They can't just get up with a more positive attitude the next day, and everything will be fine. They can't just... If they have agoraphobia, get over their fear. Just get out there. Get used to things, you know. Or if they have, like, obsessive compulsive disorder, just, you know, just, like, get used to things. They need help. They really need help. And the thing that I felt about my book that will help with stigma, the thing that I really felt was important um, is that when you tell someone they can violate Shabbat, for their mental illness or mental disorder, it's it's real, right? Like the halacha recognizes it. The halacha has given it its stamp of approval saying, you're really sick, you're really sick. We we are so sure that you're sick, we're so sure that you're unwell, that we're willing for you to violate X, Y, or Z, That we're willing to cut, contemplate and consider uh, different issues for you, and that's a very, Significant statement as far as Allah goes right it's basically the most significant statement that Allah can make or that Judaism can make with regards to anything and that's the importance that I felt in the book was exactly that um, that uh, you know that hopefully it can help us and the people suffering feel like they don't have they don't have anything to be embarrassed about they don't have anything to like they can share, they can search out the help that they truly need. Um, I think that that's very valuable. So that was that was my goal. That is my goal. That was my goal. So giving this series of Shuram, and I hope that you got a lot out of it. Um, if uh, uh, if there's any comments, I'm going to unmute everybody. If there's any comments, feel free to say them now, or else we can just finish. All right. Well, thank you, to tell you thank you. It really has been very interesting, and informative, and it seems like you put a lot of effort, and you should be much Leah And uh, you will be very important. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good luck to everybody. And um I'm I'll uh, see you in uh, other shows here and there. Have a good day. Thank you.